Kid has discernment. <laughs> oh, the other thing that I see that I was going to mention, we're starting kind of a new program on Wednesday nights for junior high and high school kids, and there are flyers to advertise it. The group is called The Edge. Our junior hires and high schoolers are meeting up in the fellowship hall for, for worship and some study and then breaking up into groups for activities, and they have these cool cards that are designed to give to someone to invite them to to the Wednesday night meetings, and so there's also a table back in the back over here on the side for the, that has information about upcoming youth activities, and you can get some of these flyers if you want to get them and pass them out to people, so that's our other announcement. Turn now in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. As we're studying through the book of Galatians, we've been hearing what Paul has to say about the necessity of us understanding that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not something that we get in the door through grace and then we need to earn our way to salvation. We're not under the law. We're not to abide by a set of rules in order to become righteous, but God wants to make us righteous. He does the changing. He does it all. We studied and saw last week how the purpose of the law was to help people to realize that they can't keep the law and that we need to utterly depend on the Lord. And Paul is driving this home because the Galatian churches had been conned into believing that now that they've become Christians, there's something more. You also need to keep the law. And so in the book of Galatians, it's really a boiled down and personal version of what is the book of Romans. A lot of the same concepts and same teachings are taught in Romans and when we study through Romans, we'll see it again. But here in Galatians, it's just a practical zoom-in illustration of what he's teaching. The relationship of us to the law and the necessity of us understanding what real salvation and walking by faith is. As we saw a few weeks ago, the just shall live by faith. The same way that you got saved, he said, is the same way that you're supposed to live your life. Now as we come to the end of chapter 3, he focuses on who we are. You know, most of you think you know who you are. If you don't know, you can look in your pocket and check your identification. I have in my pocket a driver's license. I use it for identification all the time. It says that it's okay for me to drive a car or to ride a motorcycle. It tells where I live. It tells what I lied about my weight, it <laughs> my hair color, and it's identification. But I also have in my wallet other identification, a AAA card that if I get a flat tire or run out of gas or lock my keys in my car, they'll come and open it for me if I show them that card. If it's in the car, I guess they'll open it, and if the card's not there, they'll lock it up again. But there's that identification, library cards, a credit card that just on the basis of who that card says I am, I can buy just about anything just by showing an identification. Today, identity theft is something that people are paranoid about because it's the fastest growing crime that's out there. A few years ago, Anne, someone stole her identity and all of a sudden, they were getting credit cards in all these different stores, were getting these huge charges, and it was really kind of a mess. 
At first, I thought she was just faking it and just buying a bunch of stuff, but eventually it became clear she had been a victim of identity theft. But for a lot of us, I believe spiritually, this happens to us. We lose our identity. We forget who we are in Jesus Christ. And as a result, devastating consequences happen. In a sense, we get spiritual amnesia. Amnesia is when you forget who you are. It's a, it's a tough thing. I know there are people, um, Judy who goes to church here, had it one time from a sickness that she had, just forgot virtually everything she knew. Imagine what that must be like. There was, I heard someone has as their phone answering message. It says, hi, I can't come to the phone right now because I have amnesia. And I hate talking to people. I feel so stupid talking to people I don't remember. So if you know me, would you please leave my name and tell me something about myself on the message after the beep? And it seems funny, but spiritually, there isn't anything funny about forgetting who you are. And so now, as, as the Apostle Paul is going through a detailed explanation of our relationship to the law, here in verses 26 through 29, the end of the chapter, he just stops and reminds us of who we are. And if today you're having an identity crisis, you're just not sure what you want to be when you grow up, or you go, sometimes I just don't even know who I am. I think I know who I am, and then I forget again. Here's some great stuff for you, beginning with verse 26. Paul said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The first thing he says there in verse 26 is you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, it's probably the highest privilege you could ever imagine. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, being God, being equal with God, chose to identify himself constantly as God's son and spoke of God as his father. The best illustration that they could come up with to show the intimacy that is within the Godhead itself. How close were Jesus and the Father? Well, the best way they could describe that is like father and son. And so we have that picture. Now, for some of us, relating to God as our father might be difficult. Now, if you had a great dad, a dad who was always there for you, who was just perfect, some of you were blessed with such a father. And so for you, you know what dad was. He was always there for you, cheering you on. If you had any activity, there he was in the audience. He loved you no matter what. When you got in trouble, he was there to help bail you out of trouble. He was just the kind of support system that because you were his child, you felt safe. You bragged about your dad. My dad's tougher than your dad. He was your hero in every way, and you were his. And, and he would look out for you and would sacrifice anything because he loved you that much. And if you've had that kind of dad, be thankful, because you can transfer that over and then say, wow, 
God is my father. I'm a child of God. I'm related to God in the same way that I'm related to my dad. But some of you, this is a little tougher because maybe your dad wasn't even around. Some of you perhaps never even knew your dad at all. Or others, worse yet, you knew your dad, but your dad was cruel, hurtful. Your dad confused you constantly as to what a father was. You, you looked at other people who had dads and you just wondered, what would that be like to be in that kind of a situation? I know what that feels like, and I love my father, but my father, father was, was ill, and as a result, he was abusive. He was in and out of the house, in and out of mental hospitals, and, and finally it went, I, I got to where I just didn't see him at all once I was in about seventh or eighth grade. And so when you heard this talk about your heavenly father, it just felt like I can't get my head around that. To me, a father was somebody who should have been there and wasn't. To me, a father was someone that never once came and saw me play in sports or do things like that. And, and he treated us, you know, horribly some of the time. And, and it was just, God is my father? I don't know. Now, I didn't miss having a dad that much. When you don't have a dad, you don't miss it. You start to resent other people who have it. You think, boy, I have a lot of freedom that other kids don't have. It sure be a hassle to have a dad who's hovering over you, making a fool of himself around your friends. And yet, in reality, deep down inside, you know there's something that's missing. There's something that you would want. As a result, though, to come to an understanding of what God as your father is takes a stretch. And the best I think I can do for you is to say, think about everything that now, in retrospective, you wish your father was and he wasn't. Well, that's who your heavenly father is. He fills the gap for whatever your earthly father wasn't able to do. And I don't care how good your dad was. He's not as good of a dad as your heavenly father. But I know for me, after my dad left, there was a lot of peace in some ways. And yet in a weird way, as bad as it was when he was there, I always, to the end, even when my, after my father died, I just felt like as bad as it was, I still wish he had stuck around. And that's, that boggles the mind. But what it does is it tells us there's something within us that really needs a dad that really needs somebody bigger than you and stronger than you and smarter than you to just be there for you. Your heavenly father is that. He is, he's adopted you. He chose you even before the foundation of the world. And he says, you need to understand, whatever issues you may have had with your dad, I'm your dad. Now there are some of us who didn't totally understand what being a father is until we had kids. And then you look at that baby and you go, how could I love this little ball of fat in this way? The kid doesn't know any tricks. They can't perform anything. They can't do anything for me. They just make messes. They cry and they're, you know, you give them food and they spit it back at you. And, oh man, huh? and yet I have such love for that little kid that I would gladly give my life for his instantly. And you start to figure out, wow, I'm starting to get what a dad is. I'm starting to see that in some ways. Well, that's the relationship that God has with you if you've accepted Jesus Christ. And it's important for you to understand that and to wear it proudly and to think of life in terms of that all the time. He's your dad. You're a child of God.
Over in 1 John chapter 3, John talks about, and you can even turn over there, it's a passage that you should be very aware of at those times when you just need a dad. 1 John chapter 3, he says, Behold, check this out, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hey, he goes, beloved, do you get this? We're, we're God's kids. He's our father. And though we haven't all grown up yet, we see our dad and we have an idea of what we're going to look like. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him. We will see him as he is. And when we understand that, there's a purifying effect that it has on our life. Being children of God, having God as our father, means that there's a blueprint for what we're going to be like. And ultimately, we're going to grow up and be just like dad. We're going to grow up and be like him. Amazing. That family resemblance. It's funny when you see someone that you didn't know their parent and you meet their parent. And you may think they don't look that much alike, but then you watch them a while and maybe they hold their head just a little cocked like the other person or the way they say certain things or their laugh or the way they walk their, their gait or the way they swing their arms or the way they stand and it's like, Man, I'm seeing a family resemblance. The fact that you're a child of God means that there's a family resemblance. And you're going to see that happen more and more. The amazing thing is people who are privileged to be adopted. Now, we're adopted by God. But it's amazing when there are children who are chosen by parents, and that's a great privilege, by the way, and yet you see them as they grow older, they start to look like their parents. And I've known people who, you know, say, have a child who's adopted and after a period of years they introduce their child and they say, so who do you think he looks like more, mom or dad? And you look and you go, looks like both of you. It's like, how does that happen? But there's some kind of a connection that happens through the intimacy of a parent-child relationship that has an effect. It changes who we are and what we are and how we grow up and, and our whole identity. We discover something by being the children of the king, by being children of God, by being those that he says, I'm your dad, I'm your father. And so this is something for us, a security that comes from knowing that. Just like somebody who knows their dad's always watching their backside, knows that whatever happens, dad's always gonna be there. We know dad's always going to be there. He's perfect. And he loves us more than any earthly dad ever could. And he says, you're my child. And so Paul says, you got to understand whose child you are. What does this have to do with legalism? Well, a lot. Because if you don't have connections then you're going to have to manipulate and work all you can. Like someone in an orphanage who wants to be adopted, when they come to visit, you better be on your best behavior if you have a chance of someone picking you. But with your own parents, hey, you can act like yourself. 
You don't have to impress them in order to cause them to be your parents. They are your parents, and they give you the benefit of the doubt, and they love you. And so we get freed up from religion, trying to earn some sort of status with our parents because we know we're their kids. We know that everything that's theirs will one day be ours and that they love us unconditionally because we're their kid. Well, as we go on in verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, this is kind of difficult to figure out what he's talking about. We're not even sure what it means to be baptized into Christ. Paul uses the same term over in Romans chapter 6, though, concerning, and he says, you died with Christ, and in baptism, you're raised up to newness of life with his resurrection, and therefore, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. He's taking this image of baptism, and actually, he's talking about the reality that's behind baptism. Water baptism itself doesn't save you. It's not something whereby when you're water baptized, something magical happens. But it's a picture of what happens when you're identified with Christ, when you, when you give your life to him, when you accept him, and he brings you into this new birth, what Jesus called being born again when he was talking in John 3 to Nicodemus. What happens is, somehow, all of my sin, all of my failure was put on Jesus Christ, and I died 2,000 years ago on the cross. We saw this earlier in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I died when he died. And when he rose, I was born again. That was my fresh start. And so, baptism that we do in the water is a picture of being buried with Christ and raising up again to newness of life. It's why Jesus told, told Nicodemus, too, that you got to be born again. He said, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. Now, people disagree on whether being born of water in that passage is talking about being baptized. They think maybe it means physical birth or a picture of the spiritual birth. Whatever it is, the point is, God has given you a new life. You have been raised up. You've received a fresh start. And not only that, as he says back here in verse 27, you've put on Christ. Over in Romans 13, verse 14, Paul talks about that as well, putting on Christ. The idea is being clothed with him. It's like the way you would put on a coat, but you put him on your identity lost in his. You're becoming such a part of him and him becoming a part of you that it's difficult to look and see where he picks up and where you let off. And that's what happens when we're saved. We are clothed in his righteousness. He surrounds us. He lives forever to make intercession for us. And he says, get so close to me that you'll have that new life that I have. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. Whenever there's someone who comes forward to accuse you, I'll defend you. And amazingly, when God looks at you and when he looks at me, I may get my identity by looking in the mirror getting up in the morning and go, it's been nice. We've just been doing some work on our bathrooms and we don't have a mirror in there. And I enjoy that. 
But, you know, you can go and look in the mirror and just go, oh, wow, I had no idea. You ever have that? I mean, sometimes if you have bad light around your mirror as you look, and you go, you don't look too bad. And then all of a sudden, you're somebody else's house, and they have really bright lights on the mirror, and you go, what is that? What, when did that happen? I see hairs I didn't know I had. I see, and, but see, here's the thing. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And if we could get a grip on this, if we could come to accept this and understand it, imagine if we could look in the mirror and see Jesus. If we could see ourselves the way he sees us, perfect and, and fresh and new and born again. Imagine also what it would be like if we could see each other that way, the way God sees us. The alternative is, again, it's the law. Living by legalism, living by rules. See, what happens is, if I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see, if I look at myself and am disturbed by the, the results of, of surveying my own state, well, one of the things I need to do is start noticing bad things about you too. I start going, man, I, I didn't realize I had so many lines in my face, but I'm looking around going, oh, that's it's really nice to see other people have lines in their faces too. And the greatest thing is when you're in line at the grocery store and you're killing time and you pick up a National Enquirer or Star or one of those and you see a picture of a movie star, that they just look hideous. They look awful, rolls of fat or something, just caught at a bad time and I'm like, it just ministers to me. <laughs> I never felt better than when I saw a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger in a Speedo with his belly hanging over his Speedo. It's like... Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but that's the law. That's the idea that I need to compare myself with others. And if I'm doing better than most, I feel good about myself. That's what the law does. The problem is, as we've been studying, the law isn't there to make you feel good about yourself. The law is there to help you to realize you can't keep the law. You can't live up even to your own standards, even to your own rules, as we talked about last week. But here, in the midst of this turmoil, of this identity crisis, we discover that when God looks at us, He sees us in Christ. When He sees us, He sees us so closely and intimately identified with Jesus that actually everything that we've done wrong, it's already been paid for. That's us after we're dead. It's kind of fun sometimes when you, you know, and, and there are people who go to be with the Lord, and they were just great people. Kenny Krikak's mom just went to be with the Lord, and the funeral was so enjoyable, just hearing all the blessings of what she meant to everyone who, all her kids and friends and everyone, and it's nice, but sometimes you go to a funeral where a person wasn't that nice. They were a real stinker, and you, and you listen to people talking about them, and you think, I don't even recognize who this person is. They weren't like that at all. But there's something about death that gives us a more positive perspective. You probably remember the story about the two brothers who were both in organized crime, just horrible people, ruined the lives of half the people in the town. And one of them died. And his brother, the surviving brother, came to the pastor in the town and said, look, you're doing my son's funeral, uh, my brother's funeral. I want you to say what a great person he was. I want you to just make him sound like a saint. 
He's going, how can I do that? He, your brother was a, as a complete criminal. He was mean to everyone. He never did anything nice to anyone. How can I do that kind of a eulogy? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. If you'll represent my brother as a saint, I'll make a million-dollar donation to your church. So now he's really torn. And he's going, what do I do? So the day of the funeral came, and he gets up in front of the people, and he said... He said, the man that's, whose body is in this coffin was one of the most despicable men to ever walk the face of the earth. He robbed and cheated and stole. He was mean. He didn't care about anyone. No one regrets him being gone at all. And yet, compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> But so often, that's what we do. We, you know, well, if somebody's dead, don't speak ill of the dead. And the idea is, that's the way God sees you. He sees you in the best possible light because whatever it is that you did in the flesh, you died. It's over. Jesus paid for it. You're clean. And now you're clothed in his righteousness. And it's so critical that you and I understand and see ourselves the way he sees us. Oh, when I look at myself, I so often just see the failure. I see the areas of shortcoming, the times when I didn't measure up, the times when I let someone down. And that's okay because I see you as even worse. But God looks at us, and if we're his children, he only sees the good because we are so intimately related to Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing that we see is here in verse 28. He says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now you go, how could that be true? There's no Jew or Greek? I mean, there's Jews. There are Greeks. At the Kreekak funeral, the, Kenny's brother got up at the beginning and said, Welcome to our big, fat Greek funeral. Because they're Greeks and they do things in a different sort of a way. You're, you can still be a Greek or a Jew. There's no male or female. Come on, there are definite, distinct differences between men and women. Some obvious, some not so obvious. But they continue to discover all the time in brain research and everything else the profound differences between men and women. And bond and free, hey, there's no bond or free. Tell me, you know, when I'm in debt, and working to pay off, you know, three-fourths of the year, just working to pay the government. You're telling me there's no bond? There's only free? But see, he's not saying there aren't these conditions. What he's saying is these qualities that will sometimes serve to put someone down spiritually, they don't mean anything to God. God doesn't think any less of you if you're male or female, if you're a slave or a free person, if you are... Jewish or Greek or, you know, Mexican or you're from Switzerland or whatever it is that your heritage is, whatever your nationality is, it may be that most of your life you've spent with people looking down on you because of the way you are. Maybe it's not a racial thing. Maybe it's a, a disability that you might have. Maybe early on in school you got branded as being learning disabled because you just don't learn right meaning you don't learn the way we teach. So we've just decided that if someone's busy like you are, you don't fit. And you know that, and you feel that, and you struggle with that. Hey, God looks at us, 
And he goes, I don't care what, how different you are. You are my child. And you're identified with Christ. And as a result, I am not going to pick and choose based on your characteristics, your qualities, your perceived value to society. I see all of you as being equal before me. And the glory of that is, as he says, you're all one in Christ Jesus. See, for us in the flesh, our differences tend to divide us. You can take a bunch of people and put them in a room and they will end up over time segregating themselves into groups that have something in common. Oh, it might not be Jew or Greek, but it might be people that like sports or people that have young kids or people who are old and tired or, you know, people who like a certain kind of music. We have a tendency to divide because of differences. Why? It goes back to the law. It's comparing ourselves with others. It's making value judgments that determine who's important or who's more important and who's less important. But what Paul is explaining here is, as far as God's concerned, you're all his kids. He's your dad. You, your identity is wrapped up in Jesus. And as a result, we're all in this together. He sees us all as being equal. He doesn't pick and choose. He doesn't play favorites. He sees us all as being together. And I'll tell you something, that kind of being a part of a big family, that's something that we need desperately. Oh, some of you maybe had a big family and, and it was really happy and you loved it and you enjoyed it. But even for some of you, maybe now your family is living somewhere else or you've been estranged for one reason or another. Your family has been divided. Some of you, maybe you were an only child, your parents are gone, and the whole concept of family just isn't, doesn't cut it for you. But the truth is, that's what the family of God is about. That God says, you're all one. Hey, if I'm your dad, and I'm her dad, and I'm his dad, then you guys are brothers and sisters. Do you understand? You're a part of a huge family that has a dad who desperately loves, and that you're all forgiven and you're all holy and pure before God, all clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, can you look at each other and see the family resemblance? Can you understand that in that person sitting next to you or that person across from you or that person that you have a hard time getting along with, that you're all in this together, that we're a family? The law will divide us from other people. Because again, by comparing ourselves, by making distinctions and differences, we judge each other because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But to understand who we are in Jesus Christ, we can finally have that pure fellowship that God wants us to have. As just all of us rejoicing that we have the same Father. Watching again at, at Kenny's mom's funeral, Watching the families, they, and they live different places, and they're a close family, but seeing them sharing in the emotion of a moment like that is inspiring. You just go, this is a family that pulled together at a difficult time. But in a bigger, more, much more profound way, we are all a family. And as such, we should be pulling together, not pushing each other apart. Hey, there are times when you just need the security of knowing that dad's there. And there are times when you need to look in the mirror and see something and go, hey, not bad. 
And there are times when you need to know that you have a family surrounding you. They're always going to look out for you. They'll stick up for you. They'll love you. They've been forgiven for the same things of which you've been forgiven. And we're all a part of that kind of a family. And it's so important when earthly families don't cut it for us, or even if they do, that we realize we have a calling to a greater family. And so, Paul says, as a result of this, you're all one. You're in this together. It's something that we share. Notice that in verse 26, it's you're all sons of God. And in verse 27, as many of you as were baptized. And verse 28, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're in this together. There's no place for lone rangers. There's no place for division. There's no place for us and them. We're all in it together. And then finally, he says in the last verse, in verse 29, and if you are Christ's, if you really do belong to him, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We've been studying throughout the book of Galatians this concept of Abraham's seed. Remember, Paul said there was a promise made to Abraham long before the law was given. But the last time God reaffirmed the promise to Jacob It was another 430 years before the law was given. From the first time he came to Abraham, it was more than 600 years later when the law was given. And he appeals to that and says, this promise that was unconditional has more bearing on you than the law that was given that was conditional, that came along later. The promise to Abraham was, in you, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Everyone will be blessed. It was what God had been wanting to do to his people since he created them. It wasn't about choosing one nationality. He picked Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob, the, the tribes of Israel, so that through them, the whole world could be blessed. Ultimately, the blessing that was promised was Jesus Christ himself, as we saw in the last couple of weeks. The seed is one. It's Jesus But now he's saying, because of Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Not just identified with Jesus Christ, but what he's saying is, everything that God's always wanted to pour on his people, it's yours. It's provided for you, the promise, the potential, that glorious declaration of God's blessing, it's yours. It's something that, because of your connection to Jesus Christ, You get the blessing. God wants to bless you in everything, the life that he has for you. If you don't get something that you want, it's because God has something better. If you mess up, God follows behind you and works it out for good. If someone does something mean to you, God comes along and says, okay, they meant it for evil, but I mean it for good. Wait till you see what I'm going to make out of this mess. The blessing of God, the promise to Abraham, the potential for life eternal, life everlasting, life more abundantly, belongs to us. And that's our heritage. That's our identity. That's one of the cards that we carry in our wallet to go, here's who I am. As he, as he finally says that we're also heirs according to the promise, he goes into that in chapter 4, and we'll cover that next week. And we'll begin looking into that and what all that means. But for us now, I just want to remind you, if you're a child of God, what is your identity? Who are you really? Who are you? Have you forgotten? Do you look at yourself? Do you think of who you are and say, I'm defined by my failure? 
I'm defined by what I do for a living or I'm defined by what other people think of me? Or do you understand that you have documented black and white on paper that God says, I am your father. You are my son or daughter. You're my child. And not only that, you're intimately connected to my son in such a way that I look at you and I see him. And do you understand too, I put you in a family. You have a a family of people. You're surrounded by those who are connected to you because they're connected to me. And that's a glorious thing. And then ultimately, that understanding as well, everything I ever promised to anyone, I want to give to you. There was an old chorus that said, every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine, 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 mine. Jesus is mine. Mine when I'm weary, mine when I'm cheery. I can't forget, I can't remember the rest of the song, Amnesia. But the point is, everything, it's yours. All that the Bible was trying to do, it all funnels down to who you are right now. Put that in your wallet. Understand, this is your identity. Now, you have a choice. You can believe what the Bible says about who you are. Or you can just figure it out for yourself, or worse yet, let other people tell you who you are. Let the world dictate what you are. And run around trying to please people, and trying to please yourself, and trying to make yourself a better person, and end up like the law always brings you, to a point of frustration, desperation, and the inability to make yourself anything. You don't have to make yourself anything. You're related. You're in the family. You're loved by God. He's your father. You're clothed in his righteousness. There's no reason to strive. You've got it made if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. We should have supreme confidence as believers. And we ought to know. I know who I am because God tells me who I am. Let's pray. Lord, we do get spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are, and sometimes we just act in a way that isn't appropriate for princes and princesses of the King of Kings. And we listen to what the world tells us. We listen to what Satan tells us, and, well, we believe the worst things about ourselves. And then we start to impose it on others as well. God, help us to have a solid identity in you. Help us to remember who we are because of what you've done. And I pray, God, that when we look in the mirror, we'll see Jesus. When we look at others in our family and our friends and even our enemies, that when we look at them, we'll see you. And know and and celebrate the fact that we are one in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. Keep reminding us we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. If you're here this morning and...